Our text this morning is Psalm 73. Uh, I'll be preaching through verses 1 through 19. Pastor Ray will preach the second part next week. He has the better part, Uh, but that's okay. All of God's word is good, amen? Truly God is good to Israel, those who are pure in heart. But as for me, My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out of their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to him, back to them, and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken in rebuke every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, Seem to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terror. Father, would you come in this place and help us this morning? Lord, the Psalms is such an honest book. And I pray that you would help your people learn this morning how to struggle in their faith and yet hold dearly to you. Would you do that for us? We need it. Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, we have arrived yet again at the Psalms. There is one book in the Bible that I love. It is the book of Psalms. And the reason is, is because in the book of Psalms, you find the most educated, the most spiritually mature people in their most vulnerable, most frustrated, most angry, faith-testing moments. 
And if you're anything like me, you are inclined, you are prone to be self-sufficient, independent, a stick-to-it-get-through-it-myself kind of individual. The Psalms display that it is okay to be weak and dependent on Christ. The Psalms are continually teaching us that we ought to run to God in those moments. We learn in the Psalms we can be 100, we can keep it real, and we don't have to be phony. A place where we can lay our burdens down, a place where we can lay our religious jargon down, So many churches have taught us that we cannot weep and that we cannot struggle in our faith and that we must be this mighty man of God and this mighty woman of God as if we cannot take our problems to the Lord of the universe who is our Father. And the result of this has been devastating. People have suffered alone because of that kind of attitude. People are running away from the church. Or worse, they are becoming self-righteous people. One look at the Psalms and we quickly realize that this is not the case. We run head first into saints that believe God is infinitely satisfying, infinitely admirable, infinitely strong, sovereign in all the affairs of the universe, yet they are weak and they are struggling in moments in this journey of faith. Does not the gospel call us to this? Jesus died for the weak and the needy. He didn't die for superheroes. He died for the wicked. You're not a superhero. I know some of you went to go see Superwoman and you're feeling feeling mighty. You want to jump through a wall? Don't do that. It's going to hurt a lot. A whole lot. The cross beckons our hearts to come, all who are weary, heavy heavy laden, and burdened in fine rest. And this morning, church, we arrive at a text that invite us to, to, to listen in, to, 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 to be part of the audience of the psalmist. Asaph conveys in this particular text his struggle with holding on to his faith in God as he looks at the prosperity of the wicked. He struggles to hold on to his faith in God as he sees those around him prospering and flourishing, as he watches unbelievers go about their jolly lives, as he struggles, although he's walking with God. This is his perplexity. Have you ever felt that way? As we examine this text, here's my aim. My aim is to draw out two points from this text. The wicked will perish. And the righteous have it better. The wicked will perish. And the righteous have it much better. I think it is fitting that we start off getting acquainted with our writer. I think because Asaph is so open with us, I think it is only right that we know him a little bit more intimately. 
So we're going to start with some background before we dig into this text. We have Asaph, and he's one of the members of the tribe of Levi. He was under the leadership of David, and this was not during the time of the temple. Remember, David didn't build the temple. God said, your son will build my temple. They were still worshiping in a tent called the Tent of Meeting, and Asaph was a worship leader. We see this in 1 Chronicles 15, 16 through 18. David also commanded the chief of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play, watch this, loudly. For you who don't like loud music, you don't want to be under David. Loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals. For what end? To raise sounds of joy. When we sing, we want to sing with joy. Unto the Lord. So the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel, in of his brother Asaph, the son of Baracha, and the son of Moriah, their brother Ethan, and the sons of Cushai. You like how I just rambled those names off as if I knew I uh, actually said them right? I probably didn't say them right, but it sounded good though, so it'll work. David would at times write his psalms and he would give them to Asaph and his associates to perform. Asaph would sing the songs of David. Not only that, Asaph is accredited for writing and composing psalms himself. He he, he composed Psalm 50. He composed Psalm 73 through 83. If you are a worship leader under David, you better believe you know how to worship. The man danced till his clothes came off. I'm not encouraging that in this place. In case any of you are getting excited, keep your clothes on. We capture his heart a bit, Asaph, in Psalms 50, verse 2. He says, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Can we capture his heart here? The, the, the perfection of beauty, he says, is God. You want to know what beauty is? It's God. God would put Matt and Revlon out of business. He is beautiful. Asaph delighted his heart in the greatness of God. He was a man of God. He had sound theology. He was one of the he had one of the greatest men as in the Bible as a leader. He grew up in church. He had an outstanding musical talent, and he had a relationship with the Lord. However, we come to a psalm where he emits doubt and frustration, and he is just honest about where he is. And one of the things I think you will enjoy about our boy Asaph in this psalm is that he keeps it real with us. He doesn't fake. He is honest. So if you're looking for a place to be real, I recommend Psalm 73. And now that we are acquainted with Asaph, let's dig into what he has to say to us. The first thing that he starts out with is, God is good. We see this in verse 1. He says, truly, God is good to Israel. Asaph does not start with his doubt, but he starts with the unchangeable, undeniable, unmovable fact that God is good. Now, church, why would he say that? That God is good. 
He says it because he knows it to be true. When he says God is good, it is it's not coming from a cliche-ish place. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, right? So we say in church, but he's not saying it out of a cliche-ish place. He's saying it out of faith and deep conviction in his soul. This statement is resting on a mountain of evidence of the goodness of God. And I think he invites us into his heart when he opens the psalm this way. And if we could slow down a bit, I think we can feel the heartbeat of this worship leader. Can you imagine him going into the tent of meeting and leading worship with this song? And he, oh, he opens up and say, truly God is good. And all the memories of, of, of Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy floods the heart of the people and they respond in joy that God is good. When we respond in joy to God, we want to respond to truth. We don't want empty emotions. We want it to be based on something. Surely Asaph would have recalled the stories of Pharaoh. He would have recalled how God's hand moved in David's life. And as was the custom of the Jewish people to teach their children the scriptures, he would have known the scriptures very well. Moreover, he would have been excited that out of all the people in the world, God chose Israel to reveal himself to. And I want to encourage you this morning, church, that it is good for us to remember that God is good. It is good for us to remember that the goodness of God is not based on our circumstances. It is not based on our situation. It is not based on anything short than his own divine character. God has been good to us. In case you have forgotten, he alone has lived the life that we could not live. He alone has died so that we may have eternal life. He has died for every saint, past, present, and future. He alone has justified us and washed us of our guilty stains. By the precious blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He has united us to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. He alone caused the sun to rise on every sinner day after day. He alone has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He alone has broken our addiction. He alone has comforted us in our most unbelievable, unbearable pain. He alone has delivered us from the snares of the enemy. He alone has no darkness in him. There is not one millimeter of darkness in God. You can search every crevice of his being and you will deduce from him that he is good. He has kept all of his promises from Genesis to Revelation. You got to get excited. You can't keep your promise for 24 hours. Some of you have lied to me in this room and I'm still dealing with that. I'm just messing around. But can we boast in his goodness? He is amazing as we just sung. And if we have one reason to rejoice, one reason to praise, it is because God is good. He treats us far better than we deserve and he continually lavishes his love upon us. Now, I want you to watch something here because in verse 1, he says, truly God is good. And then, and then he, he has a parallel expression there because he says to the pure in heart, 
So, 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 so he gives this condition sort of that, that, that those who, who understand that God is good are those who are pure in heart. Because I know that some would argue that, no, your God is not good, right? God is not good. You see all the drama going around in the world? God's not good. Some people argue that. But he says the pure at heart understands that God is good. Now, when he says pure at heart, he doesn't mean those who are perfect. Because if he meant that, none of us would comprehend the goodness of God. But to those who trust in God, those who desire for the will of the Lord to be done. Remember what Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see, see what? They will see God. There's a lot of things you want to see in this life, but I'm going to tell you what you really, really, really should want to see. You should want to see God. Doesn't get any better than that. Creator of the universe. That's who I want to see. I do, do. I deal with those teenagers. Somebody wants to see Steph Curry and, 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 and Kevin Garnett. I don't care about those guys. You know, I, I want to see God. You know, that's, 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 that's what I want to boast about. I definitely don't want to see the Warriors because I'm not, you know, never mind. I'm not going to get into that. I'm going to get in that. Let's focus on the text. Let's not cause division in the room. Don't want to do that. But here's the thing. Though God's people would confirm that he is good, it is also true. That though God is good to us, we at times doubt his goodness. Can we be honest? Asaph is. Asaph let us know that, that God is good. He, he admits that. He starts off, God is good. I, I, I want to set, I, what I'm getting ready to tell you has nothing to do with God. This is me here. This is me. I'm the one struggling in this moment. I want you guys to know that, that God is good. So I wanted to start off with that so we don't have any confusion here, right? God is good. He is pure. He is steadfast. And in Asaph, he admits or he confessed his own lack of goodness or personal defilement because of his impure thoughts and acknowledges that for a time at least, in verse 3, look at it, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now, this language is figurative here. However, it it expresses his lack of stability in the faith. Can you relate to that? Do you know what it's like to almost throw your faith away? Can you relate to this worship leader? Life can bring about some things that will rock your world. And in return, it will rock your faith. There are things that would arise in this life that will challenge your faith. There are things that will arise that will cause you to question God. In other words, his life. His faith life feels like a big game of Jenga. You guys played Jenga before, right? You stack the blocks up as high as you can, and you start pulling stuff out of it. You ever felt like things were being pulled out of your life? It's just one thing after another, and you're like, take one more thing from me, and I am going to collapse. This is Asaph. He's slipping. Your faith has yet to be challenged until the promises of God are hazy to you. And your heart begins to feel the questions of doubt. Asaph almost walked away from God, and he was a worship leader. He witnessed the great things of God, but he almost walked away. He, we ought to be humbled by this. If a man of his stature could almost walk away from God, you better believe you too could be caught in this kind of temptation. The question is, what was the root of his struggle? What caused this slipping in his life? What caused this slippery slope in the life of Asaph? He gives us reasons for his slipping and almost falling into unbelief and falling away from God. And he says the reason 
It's because I was dwelling on how good the ungodly was doing. Now watch this. Asaph shifts his focus from the goodness of God to how good wicked people have it. He shifts his focus. Let us watch how unbelief creeps in through focusing on the prosperity of the world. Asaph shifts his focus to what appears to be that the wicked has it better. He perceives what seems to be backwards. He is amazed. He is shocked that that they being evil are flourishing and him following God, not so much. How can this be, God, that the wicked are better than those who seek your will, Lord? He begins to wonder as he observes the prosperity of the wicked, if his holiness and his living for God and denying ungodly pleasure is actually worth it. Have you ever felt that way? As you look around and the ungodly person gets the promotion. Or that young lady who's been going about relationships the wrong way gets the husband. We got to be honest this morning. Have you ever been in a place where you're chasing God and it feels like the wicked is outrunning you. I'm seeking your face. It feels like everyone else is advancing and I'm standing still. This is his struggle. And as a result, he begins to think, maybe I should join the team of the wicked. He's looking out in the world and he's seeing so many people doing well. He's looking out on Facebook and he's seeing them posting yet another good day of feeling good. He's looking on Instagram and he's seeing their wedding pictures again. He's looking on Snapchat and he's looking into their eyes and seeing their joy, although the video is only five seconds. Feels like a lifetime to him. And don't we get, we we get real petty, right? Especially when we're dwelling on on the wicked, right? We, we, We get real silly, right? Get real jealous. We're like, man, she doesn't even do her hair, and it's just, it's just nice. Looks like she's using just for me, but she's not. She's just flowing. Hair looks like milk and honey. It looks like the promised land on top of her head. This is some people that just it seems that they just got it easy. Like, 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 how did he get those waves? He doesn't even wear do-rag. He just has new waves. I want waves. I want to know what it feels. He's crooked, and, and his business is flourishing. I don't understand, God. He doesn't even lift weight, and he's he's in shape. He's biceps and triceps everywhere. I just don't get this, right? I mean, we get real silly. Asaph explains what he thought he observed about the prosperity of the wicked. We're going to go through his observation of the wicked. He starts off with three observations about them. Now, I do believe that what he's saying about them It's coming from a place of how he feels. So he's exaggerating, but nevertheless, it's true, right? So there's some context here before we get into this observation, right? You you have to understand that if you go through enough pain, everybody looks as if they're flourishing, right? You ever been in that place? It's just everything's just ticking you off, just irritating you, right? Right? Just mad. Just mad. All right, so let's look at this. Three observations. Observation number one. He says they have no pain unto death. He looks at the wicked and he says, God, they're not even struggling in this life. 
from A to Z, they got it good. They have no pain. Everything seems to be just going like cakework for them. There is no suffering, yet your children suffer 10,000 things in this life. Something is wrong, God. They have no health issues. Everything seems to be intact for the wicked. Observation number two is in verse four. Their bodies are fat and sleek. When he says fat here, it's not the bad fat. It's that it's the common image for flourishing in health. He means good by this. He wants us to see that all their needs are met. They have everything they possibly desire. He's looking out at the wicked, and he said, it appears that they have everything that they want, that they get everything that they want, all their goals, all their ambitions, everything that they desire, God, it seems to just go their way. You know who I thought of? I thought of William Tyndale. I don't know if you guys know who William Tyndale is, but William Tyndale is the man that translated the English Bible. And William Tyndale um, had a heart to, to, to put the word of God in the hands of every individual. And he was betrayed by his friend. He was locked up. He was sick while he was in prison. And he just asked for one thing, not medicine. He asked that they would bring his tools for translating God's word. That's what he wanted. Then and later, they took him, they, and they burned him alive. And I wonder if he felt, at least in some moments, that God, why are the wicked doing so good? And I'm here trying to translate your word and to do your will. Asaph says, sky is the limit for these wicked people. And he is frustrated to no end. Observation number three is found in verse five. He says, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. He's like, they can't even relate to us, right? They don't know what it is to grind. They don't know what it is to struggle. They don't know what it is to suffer. You ever talk to someone and they just don't get it. They just don't get it. They haven't been through anything. And they're still walking around with smiles on their faces, right? Because the only people that are happy all the time is crazy people, right? Just oblivious of everything, right? All the rest of us have bad days. I saw somebody stopped me in the hallway today. It was like, text, man, you always seem happy. I was like, am I part of the wicked? I just, like, ah, that, that hurt it. Because I was studying this text and they said that. And then I quickly responded like, no, I got my bad days too. I got my bad days. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, they don't deal with catastrophes in his eyes. Life appears to be a piece of cake, and the psalmist is troubled, apparently, by a segment of society that is powerful, healthy, and flourishing, and they just seem to be the lucky ones in society. Those are the three observations, that they have no pains in life. They have everything that they, everything that they want, and the third was is that they don't have experienced pain like ordinary people. And what Asaph deduces out of this, what this has produced in them, this life of comfort, this life of ease, it has produced in their lives this pride and this violence in them. They have it so easy that it has went to their heads, right? 
That temptation is always there for us, right? Start doing good in life. And temptation is, I don't need God. Watch this in verse 6. He says, therefore, pride is their necklace. and Violence covers them as a garment. Because they have no care in the world, they wear pride and violence as their clothing. These people cannot go to Zales and Rogers and find jewelry for themselves because the only jewelry that is sufficient for them is themselves. They fill up on themselves. They are arrogant. They don't care about anybody. But you ever been around somebody? All they do is talk about themselves all day long. Me, 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 me. Uh, yeah, I just graduated. Yeah, I'm be graduating next year too. Uh, I just got married. Yeah, yeah, I'm about to get married too. God go send me up. It's, everything is about them. It's like I just don't want to be around you. And then you just kind of sit back with your friends and say, "Now, nah, just, just watch them. Watch them. Watch this. As soon as I say something, they're gonna say something about themselves, right?" Now, this guy, y'all didn't done that before. I know y'all have, but nothing. Nothing is sufficient for these people. God is crazy. Y'all thinking of some people, I know. Watch out now, because it may be you. Just saying. These people feel that they are self-sufficient, that they don't need anyone. These are the people who keep losing Facebook friends because of their arrogance, a thousand selfies a day. And this pride, this arrogance has blinded them. It has blinded them to the point that they have become violent. He says that they cover themselves in violence. In other words, they carry out the deeds of the devil and they rejoice in doing it. I want you to see the human heart here. They carry out social injustice and oppression. Paul puts it this way. Paul, Paul sums the wicked up, which we were all in this camp before. He sums it up this way. They were filled with all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. You are one creative dude. He's just coming up with evil stuff, just making up stuff. All the time you're just coming up with stuff. They are disobedient to their parents. They are foolish. They are faithless. They are heartless and they are ruthless, according to Paul in Romans. We are not messing with nice people here. They are wicked to the core. And yet they have all that they desire. And yet they have all that they want. What are we going to do with this? In verse 7, he says, their eyes swell out through fatness and their hearts overflow with folly. Basically, what this means is that they are filled up with self-indulgence. As I said, they have become overweight on their own desires, right? Not only do they have enough and more than enough, they want what others have too. They're going after what other people have as well. They don't care about the needy. They are gluttons of themselves. These people are evil. Then he says, that not only are they evil and violent and prideful, he says, listen to the way that they talk. You want to know a prideful person, you listen to them. They'll tell you. Ladies, that may be good in dating. Keeps talking about himself. They want to walk out of that relationship. They speak with arrogance in the next three verses. We see how they speak. In verses 8 through 10, he says, they scoff and speak with malice. Lofty, they threaten oppression. 
They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. What is he saying? I think he's saying three things about the flavor of their conversations and the way that they talk. Number one, they speak wickedly of oppression. They approve oppression. They approve the trampling on people. They say they're okay with that. They're okay with abortion. They're okay with men mistreating women. They're okay with divorce. They boast and they brag about these things. They're okay about it. They love injustice. They look at the poor as dogs. Bethel Church, let us never, ever, ever mistreat poor people. Proverbs 14.31 says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. We may not always meet all of their needs when they come to these doors, but we will try to love them the best we can. These people can care less about that verse, can care less about what God thinks about the poor, Second thing he says, not only do they trample on people, they talk crazy to God. Now, you have to be one arrogant, one pride. You talk crazy to God. I'm stepping away from you, brother. Right? But they talk crazy to God. These people are clearly beside themselves. Their arrogance has them feeling like superhumans. They sit in the place of God. They think they know everything. And oh, how many people are in our time and they fit this description. This is all over America, all on the Internet, all on the TV as we proclaim we don't need God, while at the same time claiming to be God ourselves. This is arrogant. And he says, God, they talk back to you and they're still doing good. Do you understand his frustration? That they're trampling on people and yet you are blessing them. So it feels. In verse 10, the third description of their speech, he says, therefore, people turn back to them and find no fault in them. What does he mean by that? Basically, what he says is that these people wear their arrogance and their evilness so well that other people have started following them, right? You want to be established in your foolishness? Just get a group of people to affirm you, right? Just get a bunch of people, a bunch of yes people around you, right? That's what they have, right? They have people who want to be like them, right? This is, this, this is not foreign to us because we see this in our society, right? Evil is a good thing now. Good is bad and bad is evil, right? Right? This is what is happening in the mind of the wicked people. They turn things around and they embrace darkness and they celebrate it and say darkness is where it's at. There is no shame in society. They joyfully turn away from God's word. Let's keep going. He says that because of that, they're insolent before God. Let's drop down to verse 11. And then they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Expressed in this rhetorical question, they claim that God either does not care, does not take note, of what they are doing, 
This is why they think that it's okay because God has not stopped them or he has not hindered them in their sin, right? And a lot of times we measure that God is cool with us based on how well life is going. And that is a false measurement, a false judgment of the mind of God. You'll be surprised how many people say, oh, God is blessing this because this wouldn't happen or that would. I don't care what it looks like. If it's contrary to the word of God, God is not okay with it. If you are embracing sin in this room and you think that God is on your side, can I tell you to consider his patience with you? Because according to Romans 24, he says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God hates sin. His patience is not permission, but a chance for repentance. Let's say that one more time. His patience is not permission, but a chance for repentance. Sin will lie to you. It will harden your heart, and it will destroy your life. It's kind of like the black widow spider, right? She's called the black widow, right? She draws her mate in and kills them afterwards. That's what sin does to you. It draws you in, puts you to sleep, and it kills you in the end. These people think that God is okay with them. Asaph steps back, and he says, God, they got it good in life. They have no pain. They have no struggle. Everything that they try, they achieve. They talk crazy to you. They talk crazy to you, God. They trample on people. This is my conclusion of the wicked, is that they got it easy. They got it easy, and they increase in riches. He is beside himself in this moment. And one of the things the devil wants us to feel, church, is that everybody else is doing better than you, so that he can make us double-minded people that question whether what we're doing for God is worth it. This is what is happening in the heart of Asaph. He considers his portion in comparison to the wicked, and he's tempted to leave God. In the end, the wicked will lead you away from the living God. Verse 13 to 14, he says, all in vain, I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I have been stricken in rebuke by every, every morning. Now, now watch this. Watch the words that he's using. If you really want to get the heart of what he's saying, you got to watch the words that he's using. He said, in vain, right? So his righteous living feels empty to him. It feels hollow. It feels pointless in comparison to the ungodly. Do you see how temptation is creeping in through the back door of vainness, pointlessness? The other thing that he says, is that he said his pointless that he cleanses himself. And what he's saying there is that it is pointless that he has refused to indulge in sin. He's like, man, they're having a good time. And all I got is suffering? I want to go to the parties again. Your ex start looking good to you. Drunkenness start looking good to you. 
the things that you used to indulge in start looking good to you? This is how we start backsliding, right? We're looking back, right? We're looking back and say, oh, my, 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 I remember it. It was kind of like in Egypt, right? Right? They said, hey, hey, take us back to Egypt. At least we had some pot roast there and we had some steak there. And all we got is manna out here. You take us back. You want to go back to enslavement? Want to go back to enslavement? looking and he's tempted to go back therefore he wants to be done with righteousness it has vexed his soul that he has done so much to walk in the way of the Lord but yet he has received so little he's been showing up faithfully to church he has taught God's people how to worship he has wrote songs unto God and he has received suffering in return It is not clear the adversity that Asaph is going through. But through the tone of this text, I can tell that he is suffering very badly. And is there anyone in the room that knows what it is to suffer and to feel like it's in vain? Have you ever cried yourself to sleep wondering if the suffering that God has brought upon you, actually, he actually has a design for it, that he actually has a plan for it? God, I am tired. I think if we're honest this morning in this place, we question God. As you look around and you see the ungodly flourishing, you can't help but say, God, when is my turn? I have been a godly woman and you have yet to give me a husband. Me and my husband have been honoring you and yet to have a child. The pain of his people. As we cry unto God about our suffering. Does he hear us? I'm going to work with integrity and the no good Joe gets the promotion. The reality is. For some of us. If one more thing falls on me, I will crack right down the middle. I can't take one more drop of pain, God. The ache is too much. I'm tempted to fall away from you. That's how this worship leader is feeling. And there are so many people that I know, husbands, who have walked away from their marriages because the suffering was too much. There are churches that have closed because the suffering was too much. There are children that have walked away from the faith because the suffering was too much. We're getting real here. He wants to go. Not towards God. People have abandoned the faith because suffering was too much and the world just looked at much more appealing in that moment. And oh, church, this is why we must, we must, we must encourage one another. Because of things like this, the pain has become too much for Asaph. He's perplexed. He's in a peculiar place. But what I love about the text in verse 17, it says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. 
when Asaph goes to the sanctuary of God, we can translate that going to the church of God. And how does he go to the church? Does he go happy? Does he go joyful? Does he go firm in his faith? He doesn't go in any of those moods. He goes doubting. He goes weak. He goes struggling. Have you ever came to church not strong in your faith, not knowing what the next step would be, but you came to the sanctuary of God because you knew without a doubt that there will be an answer there. You didn't know how God would turn this situation around. You didn't know where the next meal was coming from. You didn't know anything, but you knew, you knew, you knew, you knew, you knew, you knew that you knew that you knew that I got to go to church because I know that God will show up and he'll give me a word. I'll hear a prayer. I'll hear a song. I need something, something to encourage me. Has that ever been you? He walks, he goes there. He may have walked there. He may have got on his horse. He may have cranked up his car and drove and turned his direction towards the church. And this is one thing that Asaph knows. He's a worship leader in church. Understand what position he has. He's not, he's not ignorant to what happens in church. He's, he knows when he goes there what he's going to see. He's going to see some people praying on the side. He's going to be, see some people worshiping in the pews. And, and hopefully, hopefully, God will, something will just land on my heart. Something will just, just prick my heart. I want to encourage you who have been avoiding the gathering of the, of, of the people of God to come to church. Maybe God, maybe, maybe he'll say something to you. Maybe he'll speak to you. Asaph goes into the sanctuary of God. We know he went because he says he did. And what we see is that something happens to him. Something happened to a young man a couple weeks ago. You heard about it, right? Came to salvation in the Lord. Nobody told me. Dex, my life is in shambles. I'm going through a hard time. This is what he told me. This is what he comes up to me. And he says I was struggling. And he says that I knew if I came here, I'd hear from him. He didn't know God was going to save him that day. Hallelujah. God is good. Asap doesn't know much, but he knows to go to God. He doesn't go to Dr. Phil. He doesn't go to Oprah. He doesn't go to sports. He doesn't go to food, but he goes to the sanctuary. And a lot of us have been looking to a lot of things for answers, and we need to look to God. And Asaph had a revelation in the sanctuary of God. And his revelation was this. After all he said about the wicked, he says, but their end is horrific. No one is getting away with anything. God is going to judge this wicked world. I don't care how good it looks like the wicked has it. There's an end to them. And God is going to bring that end. We see this in verse 18 through 19. He says, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. They are destroyed in a moment. They are swept away utterly by terrors. I believe in this moment as he's in the sanctuary, and this is just me speculating, that Asaph sees the sacrifice of animals, and he's reminded that there must be payment for sin. 
Romans 2.5 says, But because of your hard, impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God will judge the world. He says in Romans 12.19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it's the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. You don't want to be counted with the wicked, because this is what's coming. Now, this verse right here terrifies me. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord in the glory of his might. There is suffering and wrath that is coming that is incomprehensible. The righteous will be destroyed by God. But for you, saints, your end is different. Because you're in is different, you can rejoice this morning. Because you will not be counted with the wicked. Because you are covered in the blood. It is not because you are better than the wicked. It is not because of your fervency in worship. It is not because you decided to come to church. It is not because you decided to be a good husband. It is not because... You decided to be a good man. It's not good. It, it is not because you decided to walk in righteousness. It is on the basis and the foundation of the blood of Jesus that you will not be counted with the wicked. You see, church, we have no reason to hate on the wicked. We have a firm foundation, an anchor for our soul, Jesus. We have been washed in the blood. Asaph knew this, that God had forgiven him. Have you been forgiven by God? God has forgiven us so many times, not one time, not two times, not three times, not four times, not five times, not six times, not seven times, not eight times, not nine times, not eleven times. When I call your number, stand on your feet. If God has forgiven you over and over and over and over and over and over again, God has forgiven you. You are forgiven, church. You don't have to hate on the wicked. Your end is different. We may not have the best cars. We may not have the best clothes. We may not have the best house, but we have Jesus. And there is nothing more beautiful than the Son of God. I'll take God over anything every day. God over money. God over cars. God over people. God over every single thing. I'll take him. I prefer him. He's preferred. He's preferred over everything else. If there is anyone who knows what it is to be faithful to God and watch the wicked go on their merry lives, it is Jesus. Jesus knows what it is to watch the wicked flourish and endure suffering. Jesus kept every one of his father's commands but had nowhere to lay his head. He suffered in the place of the wicked. That's you and I. He became a substitute for us. He died in the place of the arrogant, prideful, and boastful. Father, if there be any other way, take this cup from me. But not your will, my, my will, but your will be done. Jesus had the weight of this wicked world on his shoulders. As God made him to be sin when he knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, the perfect son of God whipped and beaten, that is the apex of injustice. 
You don't get more unjust than the son of God's suffering. However, he did it so that we might not suffer the righteous wrath of God. We all once in this room were counted with the wicked. But an alien righteousness has been given to us. Therefore, we have no condemnation on our lives. Jesus changes our future forever. You have no reason to be jealous, saints, for you have redemption from sin. You have an imputed righteousness. You have peace with God. You have eternal hope. You will inherit the world. You will judge angels. So when you are discouraged by the prosperity of the wicked, remember your brothers and sisters. Abraham kept believing. Moses kept believing. Joshua kept believing. David kept believing. Paul kept believing in spite of, in spite of, in spite of, in spite of. They kept on believing because they knew that there was something far better. There was something far greater. There there was an eternal prize in Christ Jesus. So they kept pressing forward. And they kept pressing on. And, and, and most of all, if you can't see it in Paul, if you can't see it in Moses, if you can't see it in Joseph, remember the perfecter of your faith, Jesus Christ, who endured the cross in spite of the shame for the joy set before him. Church, we got to keep running. Bethel, Gary, we got to keep showing up. I know at times we want to quit, but whatever you do, don't you stop. I want to talk to the mother in the room. Keep ironing your baby's clothes and doing their hair and showing up to church. Even when it doesn't feel like it's worth it, fathers keep opening up the Bible in front of your children. Even when it feels like it's not worth it, Kim Berry keep leading CLC. Nicole Berry keep leading us in dance. Leanne keep leading the worship team. Will Keith. You guys keep leading these young men. Rick, keep mentoring. Keep going, keep going, keep going. God is with us, and it's not in vain. Keep reading your Bible. Keep praying. Don't give up, because our end is better than the wicked because of Jesus Christ. We cannot lose faith. We got it much better. Let us take this gospel to the ends of the earth. Be encouraged. Encouraged though the wicked may prosper, they will not endure. It is better to choose Jesus and welcome suffering than to reject Jesus and suffer for an eternity. Know that God is just. He will bring justice to this world one day. And I just hope that you're found believing in the gospel. Let us pray. Father, in this moment, we come to you. And we admit at times we have doubted you. We have doubted your goodness. We have doubted if you were truly for us. We have grumbled. We have complained about our circumstances and situations. And yet you have abided with us. Yet you have loved us. Pray for the hurting in this room, the frustrated, those who are struggling in their faith. God, I pray that you would encourage their hearts. You would remind them of your goodness and that you would cause their feet to be firm again. Lord, we want to be a church that loves you. We want to be a church seeks the glory of Jesus, treasure the gospel, and love one another as you have called us to.
Do this work in us according to your mercy. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.